0: Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: A warning before we begin. This series discusses residential schools, medical racism, segregated health care, and missing patients. Support is available to residential school survivors and intergenerational survivors through the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line. The Hope for Wellness helpline also offers mental health and crisis support over the phone or online. Contact information is available in the show notes. You
4: might see a few graves from kids going in there, but that's a necessary sacrifice for this larger aim of goodness that I'm offering you and I'm offering society. This is Cindy Blackstock. My name is Cindy Blackstock. I'm Git Sam, and I am honored to be the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. And I'm also a professor at McGill University. Careers Society was actually created by First Nations uh, across Canada who were looking after children, the experts on the ground. We needed to challenge the systemic underfunding of public services for First Nations children. And what was kind of a not so hidden secret was that the Canadian government was really in charge of apartheid public services. They were giving First Nations people a lot less and then creating a, a public narrative as if they received more. Imagine today That the government decided that all of you were uncivilized. And therefore, you're not capable of looking after your houses. You're not capable of looking after your neighborhoods. Therefore, you need to benefit from my way of doing things. I'm actually going to apply a law so that if you resist me, I'm going to put you into jail. The type of law I'm going to pass is going to touch on your spirituality. So any of your ceremonies that are important in your family or customs in your family are going to be unlawful. And if you practice them, I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm going to move you from your house because I actually want that land for someone who's civilized. I'm going to put you on a bad patch of land. And then I'm going to say to you, you got to stay there. I'm going to actually restrict you from moving around. I'm kind, so if you need to leave, you can apply to me to leave. But you have to get my permission to leave. Uh, That's what reserves are. Then I'm going to say, well, you know all the legitimate people in your community who make decisions, people maybe that you have elected or you appoint. They're actually not the people uh, who are best placed to make decisions for you. I am. So I'm going to structure your whole governance, the way that you're governing yourselves. Your language that you've spoken up until today, that's a savage language. I am going to really make sure that you're learning my language now and that your kids are taught not only that your language is bad, but that everything that you taught them is uncivilized and savage and is to be rejected. And if you resist doing that, I'm actually going to take your kids away from you and I'm going to put your kids into schools that is going to teach them the proper ways of doing things. You might see a few graves from kids going in there, but that's a necessary sacrifice for this larger aim of goodness that I'm offering you and I'm offering society. That basically is a way of understanding what the history of Canada is from the perspective of a First Nations Métis, in Inuit person.
3: In this episode, as we delve into the 1907 Bryce Report, we're going to hear more from Cindy Blackstock, as well as Teresa Edwards, Paul Hackett, Aaron Millions, Kayla Johnston, and Anne Lindsay. This is the story of a national crime. Before we continue, a reminder that quotes from historical correspondence use terms that are no longer acceptable and some descriptions can be graphic. We have kept that language intact when quoting historical sources. On June 19, 1907, Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce submitted the Report on the Indian Schools of Manitoba and the Northwest Territories to Frank Pedley, the Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. The report contained three sections, the history of the schools, the condition of the schools, and the health of the pupils. The findings were a result of in-person visits across 35 schools and follow-up surveys. The findings clearly documented the connections between the Indian residential school system, disease, and mortality. Bryce expressed that those responsible for the health of the students did not entirely understand the gravity of the situation and hid the prevalence of tuberculosis. He also flagged to the federal government that immediate action was necessary.
4: So he was born in Mount Pleasant, Ontario.
3: This is Cindy again.
4: And he became a doctor when Canada was nine years old.
3: In 1876.
4: He had a real interest in public health.
3: It was his passion. He believed public health reforms would improve society.
4: He became the chief medical health officer of Ontario. He wrote the very first health code in Ontario. This wasn't just some backwards doctor. He was president of the American Public Health Association. His code, that was used as a model all over the United States and in Canada. He was a North American expert on public health. He wanted to become Canada's first public health officer. When an opening came up for this Indian department, he thought, well this is a good stepping stone. Then maybe there's something I might be able to do on the infectious disease side for for the Indians. So he accepts this post and that launches him into history.
3: Bryce was appointed as the medical inspector to the Department of the Interior and of Indian Affairs on January 22, 1904, by order and council, which is a type of legislation. The order and council states his qualifications, relevant experience, and work as the secretary of the Provincial Board of Health of Ontario. During the first three years in the role, he wrote papers and lectures on immigration and the consequences of urbanization. In 1905, Bryce wrote to Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier explaining the government could reduce tuberculosis death rates in First Nations by offering First Nations the same measures to prevent and treat tuberculosis that were available to the rest of Canada. In 1907, Bryce was instructed to conduct a special report by the Minister of Indian Affairs.
4: They sent him out uh, to do a survey of the health of the kids in residential schools in Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan.
3: Bryce spent three months visiting 35 schools in the prairies. He saw the poorly designed and constructed school buildings, the deplorable sanitary conditions, and many sick students. In the report, he describes how he learned about students' health histories through surveys.
5: One of my special instructions was to obtain a statistical statement of the past history and present conditions of the health of the children who have been pupils at the different schools. A list of questions was, therefore, left with each principal, requiring that they be answered and sent directly to my address in Ottawa.
3: Out of 35 schools, only 15 responded. In 1883, Prime Minister MacDonald authorized the creation of the residential school system based on recommendations from the 1879 Davin Report. The report proposed industrial schools in Western Canada funded by the government and operated by the churches, Churches had long established mission schools that targeted Indigenous children for religious and cultural conversion. Turning mission schools into boarding schools would limit Indigenous parents' influence on their children and contribute to a policy of aggressive assimilation.
6: If you look at it in a wheel of events that happened to attack all that is Indigenous and to kill the Indian in the child, you could see that one of the last acts That was done was to take down the heart of the family, and that is the removal of children from seven generations of our people.
3: This is Teresa Edwards from the Legacy of Hope Foundation.
6: When I hear people talk about assimilation, I always stop them dead in their tracks and say this was never assimilation.
3: These schools separated children and tried to destroy their connections to their families, communities, cultures, languages, and spiritualities. While we often hear the word assimilation in relation to the history of segregated education in Canada, it is a very gentle way to describe it. Here's Teresa again.
6: Assimilation policies, you would have integration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. You wouldn't have had residential schools erected far from public oversight with purposeful intent that most Canadians wouldn't know about it. You wouldn't have had these propaganda posters developed by the government so that if anyone did question when things were made public, such as they were by Dr. Peter Henderson, Bryce, and others that followed, they fell on deaf ears because there was a constant uh, propaganda being dispelled by the government to say it's for the betterment of society, creating fear that uh, your children will be at risk and these children are dangerous. They even created posters where they dressed up Indigenous children with muskets and knives. But when we look back, we could see from historians and from our Indigenous elders that the photos were completely doctored. You have a girl's hair ties on a young boy or beads that would have been worn by a young a girl were put on a boy, they just put a mishmash of things on to create these posters to say, look at these wild savages that need to give up their entire identity and become Canadians. For me, it could never be the intent to make them assimilate into society. If you were to treat any nation in the way that our nations were treated, it can only lead to disaster
3: These schools were intended to be segregated and strip away children's identities. They were far away from children's homes and watchful parents, and children were brought to the schools from many nations across far distances. The schools contributed to Canada's Indian policies, including trying to undermine Indigenous rights, terminate the treaties, and eventually destroy Indigenous peoples altogether. Indian policies were genocidal. Parents resisted the early days of the residential school system by refusing to enroll their children or not bringing them back after the summer break or if they ran away from school. They asked the government to build day schools so their children could come home. They requested improved education, food, and clothing. The school administration saw parents as negative influences in their children's education and disregarded their concerns and criticism. The 1907 Bryce Report shed light on several disturbing and lethal aspects of the schools.
2: One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system.
3: This is Paul Hackett.
2: I'm uh, an associate professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm working in the area of uh, the history of tuberculosis. I'm particularly interested in Western Canada and the residential school system and its contribution to tuberculosis. And I think from an understanding of the mortality that we're now starting to comprehend as a society in Canada, you can't separate tuberculosis from the residential school system. In terms of the the prevalence of the disease, it was probably near universal. We learned from Peter Bryce's earlier report that a majority of the kids were dying of tuberculosis within a few years of leaving the school. We're looking at overcrowding. In some cases, 100 kids packed into a school where there should have been half that. Situations where kids' beds were head to toe, packed into a room. Overcrowding tends to increase the likelihood that uh, transmission will occur.
3: In the last episode, we talked about how children were not fed enough food and how food was not nutritious.
2: Their immune system is weakened in part because they don't have quality food, because they don't have the nutrients they need and that greatly contributes to the possibility of moving from that transition from infection to active TB. Having a poor immune system is going to be a major player in that. So the kids, when they went to residential school, are suddenly being exposed to conditions where they're not getting the food they need. Whereas at home, perhaps, particularly in the North. They would have been eating bush food and food that would have kept them healthy.
3: Stress also plays a role in developing diseases.
2: The kids were obviously under huge amounts of stress being taken away, the abuse, not being able to speak their language. In many cases, living with kids from all different communities. So we kind of create a perfect situation where tuberculosis can be spread around and then develop in the individual and larger communities of children. There's a great quote by Dr. William Osler, a famous Canadian tuberculosis physician. It's really the foundation for understanding what happened with Indigenous people in Canada and tuberculosis. So the quote is, tuberculosis is a social disease with a medical aspect. It is, in other words, caused by social conditions. It has the characteristics that we associate with a disease, but it's pretty much associated with inequities, deprivation, and colonialism.
3: According to the Bryce report, the schools that were in operation for an average of 14 years had 1,537 students. 7% of those students were sick or in poor health, and 24% had been reported dead. The File Hill School reported 22 students' deaths at the school or within three years of leaving the school. 75% of File Hill students on the discharge list died. Almost every death was caused by consumption or tuberculosis. Consumption is what tuberculosis of the lungs used to be called. Tuberculosis was almost always the cause of death at the other schools as well. Bryce also notes that at the time the students were enrolled in the schools, they had been
5: healthy. With but two or three exceptions, no serious attempt at ventilation of dormitories or schoolrooms had hitherto been made. That the airspace of both is, in absence of regular and sufficient ventilation, extremely inadequate that for at least seven months in the long winter of the West, double sashes are on the windows in order to save fuel and to maintain warmth, and that for some 10 continuous hours, children are confined to dormitories, the air of which, if pure to start with, has within 50 minutes become polluted.
3: An indictment underlined by frustration. He goes on to say that with the infected students sleeping in the same dormitories,
5: We have created a situation so dangerous to health that I was often surprised that the results were not even worse than they have been shown statistically to be.
3: He recommended addressing the problems with the buildings, having each school appoint a nurse to be trained to treat tuberculosis, increasing students' physical activity, and improving the food served to students. He thought the department could conduct trials at one or two schools before adopting his recommendations. While Indian agents supported Bryce's findings, church officials were defensive at his suggestion of removing the churches from delivering his recommendations. The government was not interested in adopting his recommendations, and new students were enrolled every year. Here's Cindy again on the government's reaction to Bryce's findings. He's confident that based on the science and
4: based on what he understands good government to be, that they are going to take action to implement these reforms. And he gets stonewalled by a guy named Duncan Campbell Scott. Now, Duncan Campbell Scott is known to many of us. If you're going to take a Canadian literature class, he'll be there as a Confederate poet. But his day job was Indian affairs. And he is refusing to do anything because this would get in the way of his solving the Indian problem for Canada. So Bryce is not satisfied. He realizes, okay, well, th- this I'm going to just go above this guy's head. I'm going to write to Prime Minister Laurier. Bryce presents his evidence and says, you know, you need to save these children's lives. You need to act. Force this Duncan Campbell Scott to do his job, and nothing happens.
3: Almost nothing happened to improve health in residential schools. The Department of Indian Affairs did not publish the report, provided minimal money for building improvements, and created isolation wards for sick students. But journalists did draw attention to leaked details of the report. A common defense of the residential school system and the larger web of colonialism in Canada is that the decision-makers and perpetrators were of their time. In the last episode, we heard that officials had racist and negative views of Indigenous peoples, But the press and public reactions to the Bryce report show that not everyone thought like that. Many opposed health conditions in residential schools. On November 15, 1907, the Evening Citizen from Ottawa ran a story on the report and the headline read,
5: Schools aid white plague. Startling death rolls revealed among Indians. Absolute inattention to bare necessities of health. Absolute
3: inattention to bare necessities of health. The British colonist headline was Indian schools deal out death, and the article states that the Bryce report reveals how conditions in the schools encourage disease and require immediate remedy. On November 23rd, Saturday Night magazine stated that the report should startle the country, compel the attention of Parliament, and that the report revealed a situation disgraceful to the country. The author wrote,
5: Indian boys and girls are dying like flies in these situations, or certainly after leaving them. Even war seldom shows as large a percentage of fatalities as does the education system we have imposed on our Indian wards.
3: Newspapers shared this information across the country and covered discussions in the House of Commons.
8: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
3: After nine months of government inaction, Bryce sent follow-up correspondence to Duncan Campbell Scott and Scott's superiors, expressing his displeasure at the lack of action on the report and recommendations. He felt Scott was relying on Canadian indifference,
5: Scott replied. The department is doing as well as can be expected for the Indians, and to anything further would entail a very heavy expenditure, which at present I am not able to recommend.
3: Scott even refused to have tuberculosis in First Nations as a subject at the National Tuberculosis Association's meeting in 1910. The 1907 Bryce report documented evidence of widespread neglect that was swept under the rug even though it had generated public outrage.
0: Bryce's work identified, documented, and publicized the ongoing issues with tuberculosis in the schools in a way that drew on the authority of science and scientific method at a time when science had a lot of sway with people in authority.
3: This is Anne Lindsay.
0: I'm a settler historian as well, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Winnipeg, where I'm working with Dr. Mary-Jean McCallum. He positioned tuberculosis in the schools as a result of problems such as poor ventilation and other standards of care rather than as a sort of racial
7: susceptibility.
3: Erin Millions works with Anne.
7: I'm a settler historian and the research director for the Manitoba Indigenous Tuberculosis History Project at the University of
3: Winnipeg. Erin is careful to remind us that the 1907 report was not unique in its concerns about residential schools, but it stood apart for another reason.
7: So, there's always been opponents to the residential school system and particularly to the conditions in the schools from the time the schools were established in Western Canada in the 1880s through to the end of the residential school system. Now, this included, of course, the parents of students in the schools but also many, many government officials, including Indian agents, missionaries, police, and school principals. All of these people were consistently reporting to their own employers that the conditions in residential schools were subpar. At first, his report, 1907, was fully ignored by the government, just like all of the other recommendations that had been previously made. It was just another report on a pile of ignored reports about conditions in the residential schools. It got the attention of the public. And that's what really made Bryce's report different. He also gives very clear and specific numbers about infection and death rates in the schools that he surveyed. And those statistics are based on several schools, not just one school. And that makes it a lot more difficult to ignore or dispute those numbers than one locally based complaint from one parent or one Indian agent or one principal.
3: The government knew about the health conditions in schools as far back as the 1890s. Here's Kayla Johnson from the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation.
1: Policies to prevent the spread of tuberculosis were developed kind of on a piecemeal basis and had very fragmented implementation. A uniform policy on medical examination of new students was very slow to emerge, but the need for such examinations was reported as early as 1884 at the Battleford School, where then-principal Thomas Clark recommended students be examined by a medical officer before admission. Principals were often unwilling to follow government policies, either because they opposed those measures, because it limited enrollment and thus limited funds, or because they didn't have the money or ability to implement that. Now in the 1890s, medical advisors informed Indian Affairs that tuberculosis was contagious and it would be of great benefit if residential schools can isolate sick students, that unhealthy students be screened out before admission, that ventilation be increased, and that health would improve with an improvement of diet. The federal government had been given three options to deal with this crisis. They could close all the schools, turn the schools into sanatoria. Option three was to screen students. The federal government decided option three was what they were going to do,
3: but they were unable to enforce the policy. Field staff continued reporting concerns to the government. Dr. George T. Orton in southern Manitoba told the department of the high rates of tuberculosis in the schools in 1891. He pointed to poor ventilation as the cause of transmission. In 1895, Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs Hayter Reed asked departmental doctors about the health conditions they encountered. They stated that many healthy students who entered the schools fell ill with tuberculosis or died from it. Reed sought more information. And replies stated that students were, in fact, more affected by tuberculosis than children on reserves due to conditions in the schools, homesickness, and the false idea that it was a hereditary disease. In 1897, a departmental report submitted by Martin Benson revealed most school buildings were constructed without regard for basic sanitary standards, contributing to the spread of illness. Here's Paul again.
2: The responsibility was there once treaty was signed that the federal government was to take care of people and they did a miserable job. This is the report that succinctly shows that and that really can inform what we're talking about today with regard to the graves that are being discovered in residential schools and, and understanding the mortality that went on and contextualizing that. For some people, Dr. Bryce, is a hero and for other people, most people, they don't know who he is. This is um, an issue that needs to be brought up in terms of education, that we need to know more about Dr. Bryce and his role, and by extension, the message that was being sent to the federal government. Being told something and not acting on that is when we start to think about the culpability. There's no plausible deniability when your own doctors actually tell you that. He was seen as an impediment to the system and to maintaining the system, rather than someone who was actually Uh, legitimately informing the public and the government. Unfortunately, the circumstances were that he could be suppressed, that his message didn't get out in a way that meaningfully changed policy. That's the shame of it all, is that we had the information and we didn't act on the information.
3: As Cindy stated earlier, Duncan Campbell Scott was responsible for a lot of the inaction.
2: He was critical in the development of the residential school system. He was also critical in ignoring the tuberculosis problem issue within the school system. He was not going to spend money on this, and by not spending money, the system perpetuated the TB disaster within the schools. His attitude was very consistent among people in Ottawa, that the First Nations people were weak, that they were susceptible to tuberculosis, that the only way that that would change is if you sort of burn through them like a forest fire and leaving only the, the strong to survive, a, a kind of Darwinian philosophy. In other words, it absolved the federal government of any responsibility. And this becomes the sort of the policy of the federal government. It wasn't the policy of the United States. They recognized that there are social causes for tuberculosis. We may choose not to intervene if we don't have the money or the will or, or, we, or we actually like the outcome but that the intervention was actually possible. So the difference between a genetic explanation and a social explanation for the high rates of tuberculosis was critical in setting policy.
3: Duncan Campbell Scott maintained the position that there was nothing to be done. Paul Hackett calls this the policy of neglect around tuberculosis care for Indigenous peoples for years to come. Everyone should look at the section on the history of the schools in the 1907 report, because even Bryce expressed discriminatory beliefs of the time about First Nations. He says that people would still be savages had it not been for the devotion of the missionaries, but he didn't believe that the perceived differences warranted transmission of disease and mass death of children.
4: What did people reading the paper have to say? Well, one of those people was a lawyer and later a judge, Samuel Hume Blake. In 1908, he said that Canada fails to obviate the preventable causes of death. It brings itself into unpleasant nearness with manslaughter. What did Canada do? Did that kind of awaken everybody? Oh, we better get busy saving these kids' lives? No, they retaliated against Dr. Bryce. They cut all of his research funding, they blocked him from presenting his findings to the public, and they tried to go after his reputation. And they would stonewall him and make sure he was never Canada's public health officer, that far lesser qualified people were promoted in the system. All of this is against his conscience. He is a man of medicine. His memory of him being a failure in terms of not being able to to do the Hippocratic Oath, which is something he swore to do as a doctor, that kind of was a looming cloud in the family history.
3: The government and the public knew about the report. Did they not care? Saturday Night Magazine considered this dilemma in 1907.
5: Many will scan the title on the cover. Some will open it. A few will read it, and so the thing will drift along another year. Unless public opinion takes the question up and forces it to the front, then Parliament will show a quick interest. Pigeonholes will give up their dusty contents, medical officers will have a wealth of suggestions, and the scandalous procession of Indian children to school and onto the cemetery may possibly be stopped.
3: We need to be careful when we talk about government failure to enact policy change. As Cindy Blackstock reminds us, The government made a conscious choice not to implement Bryce's recommendations. They didn't fail because they didn't try. Here's Cindy again.
4: And what has happened in Canadian history is what I call right-washing, which is to take those people who were standing up against these egregious behaviors, who could see these contradictions, who could see uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples as people, And we're saying, no, this is wrong. We erased all those people from history. And the reason we erase it is that allows us to be able to say of John A. McDonald, Well, you know, he may have had a few flaws, but people were different back then. It allows us to say, well, we're good people today. The reason that residential schools happened is that, you know, people didn't know any better back then.
3: The story of a national crime podcast is written and produced by me, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and presented by Knockabout Media. It is co-produced by Ryan Barnett with additional voices by Gabriel Miracle. This project has been made possible by the Government of Canada. If you're a residential school survivor or intergenerational survivor, you can access support through the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. Mental health and crisis support is also available through Hope for Wellness at 1-855-242-3310. Our series advisors are Teresa Edwards, Kayla Johnston, and Erin Millions. This episode featured interviews with Cindy Blackstock, Teresa Edwards, Paul Hackett, Erin Millions, Kayla Johnston, and Ann Lindsay. Special thanks to Lindsay Gibson, Gabriel Miracle, and Caleb Ellison-Dysart. For a list of sources used in this episode, and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com. On the next episode. His story of a national crime
0: in particular framed the picture of tuberculosis in the schools as a national issue, as the business of Canada and of all Canadians. If the government had acted on Rice's reports, it's possible that there would have been far fewer people requiring hospitalization in the period our work focuses on.